assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. You can learn quite a lot from experience, that's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 19, I chatted with John Andrew Entwistle, founder and CEO of Wander.com, about the challenges of starting and scaling companies, building the future of life, work, and travel, cultural pitfalls in early stage startups, the importance of writing down life lessons, and how immigrants can save America. Prior to starting Wander, John Andrew was the CEO and co-founder of Coder.com, on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and a Teal Fellow. This is an extra special episode because a few weeks back, I announced that I actually joined Wander's founding team as CMO after initially investing in the company, back when Wander was just John Andrew, an idea, and an incredible domain name. You might be wondering at this point, what is Wander? I guess the best way to describe it is it's a network of smart homes and inspiring places that you can book for your next workation, vacation, or anything in between. And you get to control the entire experience from your smartphone, from unlocking the door, to setting the temperature, to turning on the fireplace, to adjusting the lights, even accessing the Tesla in the garage. Our approach is entirely different from other travel options because we own 100% of the homes in our platform. And we believe that by owning both the bits and the atoms, we can deliver a truly superior travel experience for our guests. We just launched last week and we really want our early believers to join us on the ground floor and be a part of the company. So for a short period of time, you can become a Wander founding member for $100 and unlock benefits like getting $100 credit toward your first stay, a limited edition founding member hoodie, early access to our homes before everyone else, and probably most excitingly, a potential opportunity to invest in our next round of funding. We're also giving away a free Wander trip for you and up to three friends for three nights. Just go to wander.com slash Kyle, download the app, create an account, and you'll be entered for free as long as you do it by November 15th. This episode was a little different, I think in all the right ways. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this conversation with John, Andrew, and Twistle. John Andrew, thanks for joining me on the Paradox Podcast. What's going on? <laughs> Nothing much. It's a uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. This has uh, been a long time in the works, but I'm super excited about this conversation. Obviously, as folks heard in the introduction, we work together, so we talk every day on all modes of communication, whether it's Slack, text, phone calls. But it's awesome to carve out you know an hour, an hour and a half to talk about everything you're up to, everything Wander's up to, and I'm sure folks will be excited to hear about it. And so I guess for the first question, you're a serial founder and entrepreneur, and it's really very much in your DNA and your blood, but you started your first company in middle school, your second company out of high school, and then you skipped college entirely. What's something that you wish you could tell your 18-year-old self that you understand now, but just didn't understand back then? 
Yeah. So I actually I actually started my first company in middle school. It was this this game server network. Basically, we would build these these custom games and, and these worlds and, and host them on on dozens of servers. You know, they they did pretty well, low six figures, which as you would imagine meant that you know didn't necessarily focus on my homework too much. And as I got older, you know, the challenges that I wanted to tackle you know, grew more and more I built multi-million visitor websites and bare bones DDoS mitigation platforms and all types of things. And so by the time I was 18, I had already traveled a big part of the, the globe, you know, worked a big chunk of my life. And so it meant that I had a, a pretty unique perspective as a teenager. I think the thing for really all young people and, and specifically myself at 18 was that I was smart, but I wasn't wise. I would say that you know, internalizing that difference as a young person is, is really critical. I think most people are, are really all CPU with a, with a hard drive that's you know, maybe 5% full. And so I think that that's really the most important thing. It's that compute without context is useless. And so I think if you're in your 20s or 30s uh, or, or someone just getting started in life to, to keep that in mind. Yeah, it's something that's really hard to have self-awareness about, certainly when you're a teenager, but obviously even in you know high school years, college years. I think the funny thing that I always think about is in my 20s even, I thought I was so smart and I probably thought I was wise. But looking back on it from my now 30s, I, I was such an idiot. There's this weird thing where the smarter and the wiser you think you are, it's almost like there's an inverse relationship with how smart and wise you actually are. And so part of wisdom is understanding where you have a circle of competence or, or you know, an area of expertise. And then those many, many areas of life, because the world is vast and infinitely complex that you don't have the single clue about. And so real wisdom comes from this place, I think, of humility that yeah, when you're a high school kid, young college kid, you're a little cocky about the world and your brain is like the sponge that's collecting so much information, but you just haven't really applied it to very much real life experience. So I think that's a really, really great insight that you captured much earlier than I did. I probably didn't even start to think about that insight until probably after college, but it was good that you captured it so early. I, I want to take a step back. We'll definitely talk about company building and, and a big part of this episode is I'm talking about the current company that we're building together. But I want to go back to maybe even before all of this and ask, is there a story from your childhood that strongly influences who you are today? You're such an interesting and unique individual. I'd love to hear more about that. <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm particularly interesting, but yeah, I mean, I would say you know, my, my pop was a, was a single dad for, for most of my life. And I distinctly remember one evening he was at his desk and I walked up to, to give him a hug before going to bed. But that evening I woke up at you know, four or five in the morning and came downstairs and, and he was still there. And I think that that's really when it clicked for me, the sacrifice that you know, he was making, you know, he would make up the time to take us to school and, and then he would go to the office and then he would pick us up and he'd hang out with us until bedtime. And then you know, go back to work always with a, a smile on his face, which I think is, is the most impressive part. And so I think that's probably what subconsciously set me on this journey was, you know, wanting to you know, work like that. So 
Well, and as someone who's met your dad, obviously it's easier for me to imagine this since he's someone who's very selfless and obviously put you and your sister first. It's such an amazing story. I mean, it's amazing thinking of it from a kid's perspective, right? The sacrifices parents make. But now that I'm myself a dad and I have a three and a half year old daughter, you know, you work all day and then you wrap up work and you don't have much left in the tank, but it's so easy to just you know, kind of phone it in when really like being present with your kids is the greatest gift you can give them. And that's an area that I'm definitely still trying to work on is just trying to be good at everything happening in a work context, but more importantly, what's happening at home and with family, because that's ultimately all that matters is, is family. And I know you believe the same thing, but yeah, I love that story because when you have someone like that as a role model to follow, it really can shape your life and, and where you're headed. So that's awesome. Well, Switching gears a little bit, let's talk about startups and building companies, obviously something that you spent probably the majority of your life at this point working on. But folks talk a lot about the difference between first-time founders and repeat founders. What are a few of the lessons that you've learned that really stand out having started multiple companies, two companies in this case, prior to starting Wander? Yeah, I would say like most things in life, that changing perspective is really the biggest shift. As a first-time founder or an early employee at a startup, or I, I even imagine as a first-time parent, you're so deep in the weeds that it's hard to see the horizon. You're fighting snakes, falling in holes, you're cold and alone, and at night you're I love that you've committed to this metaphor, by the way. You're really bringing the <laughs> metaphor to life. So don't don't I mean, turn back. Keep going like. with it. You know, it's, it's what you feel. It's what it feels like. And so all you know is, is the forest, right? It's like Plato's cave. You know, all, all you know are the, are the shadows. And so when starting your second company, you're able to zoom in and out. You're covered in, in scars. You recognize the different types of snakes before you get too close. You see those pitfalls far in advance. And so, you know, with that being said, the two most important lessons that I could share for a founder or an early team member, and, and one of these is a, a personal virtue of mine, but the first is, is really speed. I always say that the tomorrow is, is a lazy man or, or woman's today. You know, the, the clock is, is constantly racing. And I think what few understand is that progress compounds. If you're moving quickly, you're going to know if you're wrong way sooner. Uh, and if you're going in the right direction, obviously, you'll, you'll get there much faster. And so time is, is definitely not your friend. And I also believe that it's a fallacy that you can't be thoughtful and move quickly. Yeah, I think but, everybody likes to position those things as being mutually exclusive, but I don't think that's true. It's somewhat of a false choice, right? You can be thoughtful and move quickly. And to your point about progress compounding, you're going to end up in a better place with more insight because of that speed than you would have if you're moving thoughtfully and slowly. So you're trying to rack up insights and rack up learnings. And when you're starting a company from scratch, zero to one, speed and a vision and a direction is kind of all that you have. And then you pick up you know, these gems along the way, an insight here or a customer there or a relationship there. It's just not a slow process. It can't well, be a slow process. When you think about it, right? Uh, the only advantage that a startup has is speed. Inherently, right? You have less capital than larger established competitors and probably even other startups. You have less access to talent. You have really no other advantage in the world other than your speed. 
And so I think that too many startups try and control chaos and create processes just because it makes them feel like they're running an actual business. When in fact, really the only thing they're doing is leveling the playing field, which is really the exact opposite of what you want to be doing. Yep. I cut you off. What was the second lesson that you learned? The second is really around hiring and, and your team. And it's it's around ensuring team compatibility at all costs. I think a common mistake is that people assume that culture is is liking someone. They're like, do you like to hike? So do I. Like that's you know, that's great. Yeah, let's go um, to a trust fall together on our <laughs> hike. <laughs> exactly. And I think the thing that you need to understand is that you may like plenty of people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're compatible. Compatibility is, is when you're on the same wavelength, your communication is effortless, you have this mutual understanding and, and shared values. There's no need to micromanage and you know, having one-on-ones or otherwise is, is just, just simply not necessary. And so it really doesn't matter you know, how great the person looks on paper or the skills that they possess or, or how intelligent they are. If you aren't compatible with that person, you need to move on. And if you hire someone who isn't compatible, you need to fire them immediately because the ramifications on you and, and your organization are very serious. Well, I think the flip side of that coin, right? Certainly if something is not working and there's a lack of compatibility, that obviously isn't affecting just the one person, but it's actually affecting the entire organization and entire culture. You certainly want to end things quickly. But the flip side of that coin is that when you do have compatibility and when you do have shared values and all the things that you listed, there's a loyalty there that is really focused on going the distance together for the long run, right? I mean, I've been working in startups for, this is going to make me sound old, but like 13 or 14 years. And I love this idea of missionaries and, and mercenaries. And you see it a lot, especially when you're doing a lot of early stage stuff. You'll see a company, especially at the beginning, almost everybody is a missionary. They're there because they believe in the idea before anyone else. And then when a company has success and it scales, right, you'll see more mercenaries come in. And I think any scaling company really has to watch the ratio of missionaries to mercenaries. It's, it's probably impossible to hire 100% missionaries, but if the culture gets overrun by mercenaries, you have a problem. These folks tend to be more transactional. They're going around and getting their equity grants at each company and always looking at the next shiny thing. And so the thing about compatibility to your, to your point about your second lesson is when you find that compatibility, you want to hold on to it and you want to hold on to it hard. So it's the flip side of firing someone who's incompatible. You want to really, really see how you can work together for decades and have that longer term thinking. Do you agree with that? That's certainly kind of yeah, something I, I expect we agree on. I think that what's interesting to think about in the mercenary versus missionary line is understanding the type of people that you have in your organization and, and whether or not you made this mistake. I think you know having a lot of founder friends and friends who are you know early team members, they you know, are constantly dealing with difficulties within their teams. You know, people asking for raises, endless one-on-ones, drama, etc. And what I often try and tell people is, is that if you looked back in the day, people didn't go to war with each other and 
in Sparta or otherwise for stock options or because of a big salary. You know, they they did it because they believed in a common cause. They they did it because they were doing it for the the person next to them. And so I think that that is what builds a really resilient company because one day in the most successful startups, you're going to have a downtick. And that downtick could last a week, it could last a year. And the types of people that you hired will determine how your company fares throughout that. If I look back at periods in any company I've been at where things got tough. It's funny. Those are usually the times I almost have like the fondest memories around because if you're working with great people and you're working on a mission you care about, that's basically the only thing that can power you through those tough moments. And so I wholeheartedly agree, obviously, on, on both counts. The last company you started was an enterprise company. What excites you? And obviously, we're going to get to Wander more specifically in a minute, but what excites you about consumer generally and the differences between the two? Yeah, I mean, my, my general thought on this is that you know companies are are just groups of people, and and personally, I find I find people fascinating. I love to hear their problems and how I can solve them. I love to make these deep, lasting connections. And so, you know, in my previous company, I enjoyed working with the largest enterprises in the world. So, you know, I made you know many friends with procurement officers and CIOs and. You know, had many laughs and it you know, was fortunate to power the software development for some of the most impactful companies in the world. And I think it's that love of people that allows me to love consumer just as much, if not more. I get to interact with people of all ages all over the world. I get to become their friend and work on a product and a company that will create a, a lasting impact. Our product is, is the type of experience that generates memories that, that last a lifetime. And so when we get that random call from a guest checking in that, you know, when they're like, holy shit, uh, this is amazing. You know, it clears all stress and doubt and, and worry and provides enough fuel for many decades, which I think is a little bit further spread out in, in an enterprise company. Whereas you know, with consumer, you're kind of constantly riding that. Right? Yeah, it's, it's so different. I mean, in, in enterprise, you have these long sales cycles, right? And so many touches. And in both cases, right, you're dealing with people. These are people, businesses. But yeah, with consumer, I think what I like about it is your fingers just on the pulse of what your customers are thinking and how they're feeling and how they're reacting to your product so much more. And I think that's so invigorating. And so... Yeah, no, I'm I'm right there with you. I'm super excited. I'm 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 holding off. We'll we'll ask another question, then we'll get into Wander. But I, I can't wait to talk about Wander because obviously it's something we talk about all the time. And I'm super excited for folks to hear more of the the backstory on the company and, and the future roadmap and vision. So one last question before we get into the world of Wander. Being a founder is very stressful. So I've seen this from multiple angles, right? I've started my own projects back in the day as a founder. I've invested in founders through both being an angel investor and through my fund. I've come alongside early stage founders, particularly on the marketing side. And so I've just seen on a very personal level how tough it is to deal with lots of stress, lots on your shoulders, that feeling of immense responsibility, right? You have folks that are, their livelihoods, at least temporarily, are depending on you and, and the success of the company holistically to continue. So my question is, how do you manage your own psychology? This is now your third company, you know, second time probably being a real full-on founder. How do you manage that? 
Yeah, I I think the one thing that that people tend to forget about is that we control how we interpret the world and how it affects us, even though, you know, oftentimes it doesn't feel like that. It's important to, to understand that if you don't like how things look or feel from one angle, that you can shift your perspective to another. When I was a kid, I created this list of rules. Now, I would say that they were virtues or, or values, but you know, as a kid, you know, all you all you know are rules. So that's that's what the the document is named. And, and I wanted to create my own set of these rules that that made sure that I, I never wavered. And rule rule number one was that the worst thing that happens is you die, which I, I know can sound a little bit morbid, <laughs> a little draconian for like a twelve year old, <laughs> but. Uh... <laughs> Lots of wisdom, actually, and Lots of wisdom, right? Well, what it, what it did was, was force me to keep things in perspective. It, it, it made childish things like breaking up with a girl or my pop embarrassing me a little bit easier. And I actually still have these rules today. The list is, is a little bit longer now. John but Andrews, yeah. 12 rules for life. How many rules do you got on this, on this list now? Uh, there are six. There are six rules. Okay. That's not that long. I mean, you know. A decade of life and insight, and it's only grown a few. Well, I had to. So there's actually two lists now that we're really diving into it. There's a list of of personal rules, uh, which are really around you know ensuring a constant mindset, and then there's a second list, which is basically things that I've learned. And the things that I've learned list is probably I don't know a thousand rows deep, and it's everything from not sitting under a tree with birds in it. <laughs> to wearing rubber-soled shoes when you're walking in, in New York in the winter. There's a longer list too that's a little bit, uh, you know, a little Inflated. bit more. Detailed. A little bit of rule inflation. That's good though. <laughs> I love that. I, I think there's such great power in writing stuff down. I, I still tend to be pretty old school in that sense. Obviously, I'm on my computer all day, my laptop, and using all the tools that we we use to run the company. But every single week, I have this trusty legal notepad on my desk and I write down exactly what I want to do for work, exactly what I want to do in my life outside of work. And there's something just very satisfying about writing it by hand. My handwriting has gotten infinitely worse since I pretty much type or text constantly. There, yeah, there's a connection with your mind when you write something. And that feeling of satisfaction when you cross something off is unlike anything else, especially when it was like a real tangible goal. So I think that, but also applied to just goals or rules or insights in general, it's kind of a lost start. If you go back and look at Benjamin Franklin or the founding fathers or any of those folks from the past, a lot of them had journals, right? They wrote down what they learned and what happened, but it's good that you have some version of that. And I have some version of that. And I think it's a very underrated and underappreciated way to spend your time, honestly. I think that we only have so much time and to have to spend a decent sized portion of that learning the same things twice just isn't how I want to spend mine. So For sure. I can agree more. Well, let's talk about Wander. So obviously I know the origin story of the company well, but I want you to share it with the audience so we can kind of set up and give context for the other questions that I have. I guess to set up the origin story of the company, was there something in your background that got you thinking about life, work, and travel and the intersection of those three things? Yeah. So as a kid, like we talked about a little bit earlier, I spent the majority of my childhood building these small online businesses. And so, you know, to... (laughs) to better manage my time, but really just because I was sort of frustrated with having to go to school from, you know, nine to three or whatever it was. I actually enrolled in high school online. 
And that gave me the, the freedom that I think so many of us are experiencing throughout the pandemic to work anywhere and then be anywhere, which as a kid, sort of your boundless imagination was really pivotal in, in sort of who I am today. Aside from you know, travel and exploration, I had this, this fascination with with going fast, which as you would imagine, you know, has, has left me with quite a few broken bones. And when I turned 15 or 16, I went to this racing school in Arizona, ended up joining a team, raced formula cars across the country. That paired with the fact that, you know, I could now travel with my pop for work, you know, meant that I got to go to places like, you know, Korea or Iceland or otherwise for big stretches. And so by the time I was 18, I had been to most states, you know, a dozen or more countries. And so, yeah, I think that sort of set me on this path and, and this love for travel. And when I graduated high school, I started a company called Coder with my co-founders. We built that company from 18 to now. We had a, a really amazing office culture, but I was always trying to fit in adventures where I could. If we, if we had a board meeting in San Francisco, I'd fly into Seattle and, and drive down. So yeah, at this point, I'd spent hundreds of nights in hotels and vacation rentals across the globe. And so when I stepped down as a CEO of Coder earlier this year, I, like so many of us, I think, just wanted to go somewhere beautiful and, and to relax and, and decompress. And when I got there, the beds were uncomfortable. The internet didn't work. Heater was broken, uh, which was unfortunate because it was... In Colorado? Was That's not great. <laughs> You know, and for me, it was okay because yeah, I wasn't there as a as a vacation. But the the experience was something that was was incredibly familiar for me, and so my mind just ran for days out there, you know, dreaming about the future and really thinking about how this was the first time in in history where such a big part of the population could be anywhere. This idea that work and life were finally coming into harmony rather than, you know, balance like a line in the sand. And so, you know, as I began to think more and more about it, I started to draw parallels with, you know, the, the companies that have inspired me, you know, Apple and otherwise. This idea that if you owned the bits and the atoms, sort of how Apple owns the hardware and the software, you could control the end-to-end -end experience and, and iterate towards perfection while building a really strong moat. And so it was a relatively clear vision for Wander. And it, it sort of you know, felt in that moment that the, the world had, had conspired with me to get to that point. And yeah, the idea wouldn't leave me alone. And I know you tried to kill the idea. So you're in Colorado, you're thinking about this idea at a very high level. And so I'm sure what happens, right, is your brain starts running all these background processes and you're actively thinking through, why couldn't this work? How long did you spend thinking through the idea trying to kill it? I mean, it had to be weeks and maybe even a couple months, right? Yeah. So it was, it was a couple months. I think the thing really that people don't realize is that humans are inherently good at, at seeing the future. And what I mean by that is that we have this, this ability that really no other animal or, or living thing has, which is to predict and plan and to strategize and, and think through. And what I found is that the, the longer that you think on a certain subject, the, the more that you try and, and predict the future, you're able to avoid a lot of the pitfalls that, that you would in, inherently fall into. And so I think that's really where the perspective of this being my second you know, venture-backed company really came into was that I did not want to spend the next six years of my life only to find out that this company would fail because of some obvious economic model or demand issue or otherwise. 
And so I spent a few months, you know, creating, I guess, what you could loosely draw parallels to as a business plan, trying to understand all the ways that this company would die, trying to see why it would be some niche idea uh, that would serve very few customers. And at the end of the day, I couldn't. And that's not to say that there won't be things that we can't see or challenges that we're not prepared for in the future. But all of the obvious ones had a series of paths around them. And the, the key risks we were able to address very early through team and structure. And I think that's something that's, that's super important for both leaders and for early stage founders is to and take a little bit of time and, and try to see the future. Absolutely. So you spend several months trying to kill the idea. You couldn't kill the idea. It basically had a hold of you at that point. Um, and this is the part of the story where at some point here, right, I, I, I entered the picture. <laughs> I, I, I could just quickly tell the story of how we met and then I'll go back to the question I wanted to ask. I was on Twitter and Someone who I didn't even follow liked a tweet that you had written, even though you and I had zero connection of any kind, but it was something like, you know, I'm building my company. It's wander.com, yada, yada, yada. I, I think I stopped dead in my tracks reading it when I saw wander.com. I was like, how on earth did this guy get that domain? And so immediately it grabbed my attention. I sent you a DM. You said, oh, I'd actually... I think you use the word actually. I'd actually like to chat with you because <laughs> you know, your background is very relevant. You know, open door, hotel tonight, all the rest. And so we hop on the phone and I think you told me the vision that you'd been stewing on for months and started to work on already. And I was just like, yes. I think I committed to invest on the spot and I literally never do that or almost never do that. I always at least sleep on it for one night. And this was the one time where I was like, yes, just tell me how big of a check I can write. I wholeheartedly believe in what you're talking about. So anyway, that was a little detour on this line of questioning. Let's also talk about the why now question, which you touched on a little bit earlier. Also, let's get very tactical too, because I know we've been talking very philosophically about Wander, but just functionally what the core product is today. I mean, the way I would articulate it, right, is that Wander is a network of smart homes that you can access with the push of a button. And you can control the entire experience from your phones. From the moment you walk in the door, the app knows what temperature you want the rooms at. You can turn on the fireplace. You can access super fast Wi-Fi. There's a Tesla in the garage waiting for you. So that's kind of functionally what the core iteration of the product is today. But if you want to build on that and just talk about why is that so fundamentally different than the alternatives that exist for consumers? Yeah, the general idea with Wander is that by owning the bits and the atoms, right? Really owning everything, the booking, the home management, the actual homes themselves, you're able to iterate towards perfection. Much like you would do software releases or otherwise, you can do releases to both the homes and the app. It's sort of like how iOS feels so perfect on Apple hardware. And when you own both of these things, like you mentioned, you're able to do really like incredible things, the home control, the Tesla in the garage, and guarantee just the locations are in a bad neighborhood. In fact, they're the opposite, like the most inspiring, magical places that we could find. You're able to guarantee the, the quality and cleanliness and more. I think as you start to think about what can you start to do when you own the hardware and the software, and then you're also driving your own demand, that's when it gets really interesting, right? It's like you know, a wonderful sleep brought to you by insert mattress company here. 
or how the home interacts with the power grid, or all of our homes have fiber. The nerd in me thinks about edge and all these, obviously a lot of these ideas are very far-fetched, but it's really interesting to think about where this company can expand. Yeah. I think the other thing too, is the cultural context that we're operating in at the moment, right? And so we've spent the last two years with this pandemic. We've been locked down, we've been burned out, you know, there's sort of this weird, almost paradox, right? Or this kind of duality that we sort of are experiencing, or at least like many of us that work remotely have experienced this new freedom to be away from the office and to ditch the morning commute. But what it's been replaced with, right, is being at home and the line between work and life gets very blurred. And you talked about work-life balance and trying to bring those things together in a way that makes sense. And it's very challenging, right? And folks are desiring this escape to freedom, right? They want to be able to Again, maybe it's only a couple of weeks a year. Maybe it's a couple of months a year. Maybe for some people, it's the entire year, but they want to experience other parts of the world. And now technically they have the freedom to do it, but you're right. The infrastructure is not, not there for it, right? You get to your rental and there's no Wi-Fi and the bed sucks and, and all the rest. So the cultural context is obviously really important, right? For, for why Wander makes sense now. And there's a lot of other why now reasons we can talk about, but that to me is, is one of the top ones. Well, you also have the companies like Open Door, who sort of paved the way for prop tech. You have, you know, companies like Airbnb and, and VRBO, who help shift the mindset of the consumer towards vacation rentals and what that future looked like. And so you pair that with the pandemic and it just feels like there's this tectonic shift in the travel industry. And yeah, I mean, obviously we'll see, you know, wanders, wander super early, but I, I don't think that this company is going to be limited by the, the opportunity or the timing. For sure. What are some of the key problems that we need to solve to make Wander successful? And I guess asked another way, you mentioned Open Door, and obviously I, I worked at Open Door. I was the second marketing hire there and really had an amazing four plus years there. It was probably the best experience of my career up until this point. But Keith Raboy, who obviously is one of the four founders, and he actually was instrumental in me getting into Open Door because he responded to a cold email of mine back in like early 2016 and introduced me to Eric, the founder. But he talks a lot about this idea that you always have like a handful of existential problems that if you don't solve, the company will die. What are those key? risks for Wander, if you had to kind of list them out, we can kind of unpack them together one by one. The, the first one that I was really thinking about was demand, right? This idea that we are going to verticalize everything, we're going to own the software and the hardware uh, and everything in between meant that we would also have to own our own demand, right? Our, our, own, our own customer interest. And I think that that was something that you and I really bonded over, you know, even before you joined the company was the importance of our distribution and how when you're blocked by uh, supply and not by demand, you're in a much better place to scale. And so that was really the, the, the first key problem that I was thinking about. From there, you sort of move to the supply side. How do we set up scalable capital markets and, and financial infrastructure to scale our inventory? And then your next problem is how do we set up home operations that can scale and really keep our costs as, as low as humanly possible? And those are just the tip of the iceberg in terms of things that we'll have to overcome with our current model and doesn't even begin to cover the challenges that we'll face as we introduce longer term stays or wander urban or you know, our marketplace or, or otherwise. Yeah. Startups can often feel like this game of whack-a-mole 
right? At any given moment in time, the different things you're trying to solve for, they change, you know, they pop up and pop down and, and so forth. And obviously right now we're in the first inning, the first chapter, the first page of the first chapter of the Wander story. And so there's a set of challenges we face now. And basically your reward for solving really hard problems is more problems, right? That's the reward when you keep winning battles, right? Is you get more of them and you get to try to run through the next brick wall. And so I'm excited and probably moderately terrified <laughs> to see what some of those are because they're they're always uh, interesting and often unexpected. Switching gears again a little bit, who's someone that you'd love to invest in Wander that you haven't worked with before? So obviously Coder raised $50 million plus and you've uh, worked with a range of excellent top tier, both angel and institutional investors on the VC side. If you could, you know, if you get one or two uh, new investors on the Wander Cap table that you haven't worked with before but have heard good things about, you know, what would that look like? Yeah. So, and it's unfortunate that you're forcing me to exclude the folks on Coder's Cap table, which are really some of the, the most amazing people that I've, I've ever worked with. You know, through that process of building Coder, it meant that I got to interact with dozens of dozens of firms, a few of which, you know, I, I've, I've always wanted to, to work with, right? Your, your Andreessen Horowitz, your Sequoia, NEA, KOTU, Iconic. Honestly, I could go, I could go on and on. I find that the process of meeting people and, and talking about the company and, and hearing their thoughts, and of course, if it, if it makes sense to, to partner on what will hopefully be a, a really amazing company, I, I just find that super enjoyable. And, you know, of course, I also love having a cap table full of operators. And so my general feeling is, is that if any operator wants to invest in any company that I'm doing, we're going to make room. As you know, right? Like, I'm a big fan of of giving early believers, you know, access. Like we all yeah. we all watched companies like Stripe and SpaceX and Instacart and Uber grow into these massive companies and you know, a certain set of us always believed, right? Like I remember using Stripe like yeah, but there was no access. You couldn't invest in Stripe at the beginning unless you were yeah. you know, and a so, top tier VC firm or something like that. Exactly. And with companies going public later and later, right? It's like that opportunity for people is pushed further and further out. So I just believe that if Wander is lucky enough to become the lasting company that we are going to work tirelessly to build, then I, I want to give you know early believers that that opportunity. Yeah. And we obviously are. I mean, at least that's the idea behind these founding memberships is we have folks who are becoming founding members because they believe in the vision of Wander. And again, we want to give them the potential opportunity to invest in the company early. And I think giving customers real ownership of the company is important because the North Star of the business has to be the customer. Giving customers and early believers real ownership and real skin in the game is, is an important part of that. Last Wander question for now. We can always drift back into, into Wander, but take me to 2026. So five years in the future, what do we think Wander looks like? Obviously, you know, it's a long way off, especially in startup time. In startup time, five years feels like 25 years or maybe five months, depending upon how you're looking at it. But what do you think Wander looks like in, in five years? Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that that we've all dreamed about, right? So it's it's relatively you know easy to to rattle off, even though you know sitting here today with the company only you know, whatever it is five or six months old seems seems far fetched. There's just this I don't know this this weird belief that that we can hit it. We would have 
thousands, right, of, of Wander owned and operated homes across the globe. We've probably opened up our technology to the world and we'll have hundreds of thousands of stays on our platform. We'll have likely expanded into longer term stays. And with Wander Urban, you could jump from city to city for the same price as your rent. You know, one thing that, that I'm super passionate about is, is housing. And I, I think the companies can do a lot of good for the world. And so, you know, I would say Wander Housing, you know, our nonprofit will have, you know, hopefully built dozens of thousands of affordable housing units. I mean, I would have hoped too that we would have used our scale to make travel affordable. Yeah. And make, yeah, make a, a big dent in, in this idea of building the infrastructure for people to experience the world. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Over the last week, we've had lots of positive feedback on on Wander and what we're building. And I think one of the constant questions we get is what's the price point, right? Because you see, you know, high quality home in Tahoe or in southern Mendocino County or up in Oregon, any one of our homes, and you're like, they look incredible. Is it going to be expensive? And I know we've started to obviously respond to folks and let them know that our philosophy is when we want to be priced at or below what other rentals, comparable rentals in in the area are. And obviously our longer term vision with scale and with the fact that we own our homes and can set our own prices, we're not a marketplace. Our goal is we want to democratize access to these experiences. It's easy to forget this, but we filmed the launch video at Wander Anchor Bay. And whenever you hear a guest who's staying in one of these homes, talk about their experience. It reminds you that what we're building is just, it's a very human thing. It's like something that all humans really want. And I think that they deserve. It doesn't matter at your station in life or where you're from. I would love to drive the price point down of a wander home, even for a couple of days, down to the point where as many people as possible can stay there and make memories with friends and family. And, and, and that's what it's about. I think that's a big part of why I was so interested in wander at the beginning and why I ultimately joined the company was... You know, during the pandemic, I spent a decent amount of time right, trying to escape from the monotony of daily life. And my wife and I and our um, families would rent beach houses like at Monterey and stuff. And I realized that that's when I was absolutely at my happiest was I was surrounded by family. I could try to work if the Wi-Fi was good, but it wasn't a wander. So the Wi-Fi wasn't good. But it, it really was that harmony between work and life and that flow state of everything feeling like it was kind of coming together. And I just want more people to have access to that. And so if wander can be a vehicle for that, then I think we've done our job. And so that's what really makes me super excited about the future of the company. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked about this, but as people, right, we were meant to explore the world. Yeah. And that's regardless of class or otherwise. And so, yeah, I would agree. And I think what we're building today is is pretty extraordinary, but the plans for tomorrow, I think will, will be something special. Awesome. Well, we're at the part of the podcast where I turn the tables. So now you're the podcast host. You're going to fire some questions my way and I'm going to do my best to answer them. (laughs) So (laughs) go for it. Take it away, John Andrew. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. My first question for you as an operator and as I'm having way too much fun with this. Uh, yeah, you really <laughs> are. You really are having too much fun. Do you want to name your podcast? You can go ahead and name it. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, I'm, I'm officially a host of... All right. Now, so. All right. Um, Co-host. Co-host capabilities <laughs> have been turned over. <laughs> you know, what is... What's the most controversial but true belief that you hold about company culture? And I, I really don't want you to hold back on this, you know, you have 14 plus years of startup experience. I want to hear what you have to say. 
we'll ease into this and then I'll really let it rip. But the high level opinion, right, isn't controversial, but I'm on the extreme side of the spectrum on this topic. And so you talked earlier in the episode, right, about how the number one, in fact, maybe the only advantage that startups have is speed. Mm -hmm. There's big companies with scale and, and budgets and revenue that have more resources to do stuff. But the only reason why you know, why does David beat Goliath in the Bible, right? Because Goliath is big. There's some scholars that say that he was actually potentially blind because he was suffering from kind of some form of, of blindness, very slow moving, covered in armor. And all this continue with the story, right? King Saul turns to David and said, okay, you can fight him, but you got to put on my armor. And he's like, no, that's not going to fit me because I'm just a little boy. I'm a shepherd. So he ditches the armor and doesn't try to fight Goliath on his level and does something that's somewhat unexpected, right? He picks up five rocks, turns out that he only needed one, puts it in a sling, and puts the rock right in the middle of Goliath's head, and Goliath falls down. And so why did Goliath fall, right? Goliath had every perceivable advantage, but he was big, and he was slow, and he was fighting against an opponent that had a completely different perspective, young, fast, lean. And so speed is all startups have. And so I think the number one reason why companies lose speed, why startups in particular lose speed, is they massively overhire. They just hire way more people than they need. And what they're doing is they're just giving away their core advantage. Every single time they hire someone the company doesn't need, they're creating complexity. The communication channels get more problematic. Maintaining a culture as you scale is very difficult to do. You know, Organizational leadership is very complex. And so my belief is that you only hire when it hurts that you avoid hiring unless you really, really need to. I mean, we have technology, right, that allows us to automate certain tasks and humans are very creative and, and actually the constraint of having a small team, I think forces more creativity. And so I would take a team of 10 really excellent people over a team of 50 people any day. And I've seen small teams beat large teams over and over and over again. And so obviously I've talked about this almost till we're blue in the face, but Wander obviously is a complex business. There's a lot going on. And I think there's, there's a relative version of this, right? How do you keep the business lean and mean and moving fast at different stages? And so I guess my opinion is the vast majority of startups, especially startups that are experiencing some growth and traction and maybe something resembling product market fit, they overhire or they hire before they've hit product market fit, which is a big mistake. And so what is, a, yeah. and what is what is an investor or an advisor would you say to those startups that you think of have overhired? Well, the good thing is I invest at the very earliest stages. So pre-seed seed. Usually there isn't a product. Maybe there's just a deck. Maybe there's just a small founding team. And so if they asked, if we were talking about this topic, I would just really, really implore them to be wise about their hiring strategy and to hire, to hire slowly. If a company is already scaling, it's really hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And that's when things get really messy. People do layoffs, people do whatever they got to do. And you really want to avoid that right on the front end by not getting to the point where you need to do that. But yeah, if you reach some crazy scale, there obviously are times, you know, where to save the company, you have to do that. But if you've gotten to that point, then I think you've already made a number of mistakes. And it doesn't mean your company is beyond saving. It just means that saving it is going to be a really painful process. And you have to pay down that organizational debt one way or the other. I agree more. And so, you know, you mentioned that you invest at the earliest stages of a company as an investor. What is sort of the biggest red flag for you when you're talking to, to a company? 
I think the biggest red flag is when there isn't clear founder market fit. And so what I mean by that is if it sounds like the product idea was something that was sketched on a whiteboard versus something that was flowing out of their soul because of either their life experience or whatever, then it's kind of hard to invest at the beginning because at the beginning, you don't have much else to look at. You don't have any data. You don't have any customers to talk to. It's cliche at this point, right? Because everybody says this, but at the earliest stages of company formation, it's really all about the founders, the founding team. And so for me, if it's not really clear why this person is working on this problem, then it's hard to really get super excited about what they're doing. Like when you and I talked on the phone, it was very clear to me both the vision and kind of why you had the vision and how you'd arrived at the vision. And I've invested in over 20 companies at this point. And I can say pretty confidently with all of them that there was a reason why this person started this company, that there was like a really good connective tissue between the actual idea and the problem they're solving and some life experience or some insight or some passion, right? And so to me, that's the biggest red flag. I mean, there's other red flags, of course, and there's red flags that founders have on investors, right? Let's not forget, we are living in an age where founders rightfully have the leverage. I think when I first started working in tech and startups, you know, investors still had a lot of the leverage. People didn't know about fundraising. There was informational asymmetry and so forth. But now founders rightfully have the leverage and we're in a very capital frothy environment. And so, yeah, the number one red flag for, for, for a founder with an investor, or at least from my perspective, is, is an investor that hasn't built anything, right? So anyway. Well, I think that idea of individual problem fit uh, is is super important, right? Across the team, across your investors, you look for people who understand what you're doing, why you're doing it, and are, to tie it back to something we said earlier, are missionaries, right? And I think that that's not just your team, but it's also your cap table. And, and so, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So you've had you know, an incredible career so far. And, you know, obviously that that doesn't come without a lot of hard work and determination. And so I'm curious, what makes you tick? What is your internal motivator? This is a great question. And it's a very hard question, right? Because it requires a lot of self-awareness to answer it well. And as I was saying earlier, you know, I, I still may not give the best answer in the world now, but I can give a better answer now than I could five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. To the extent that I've had, a, and I've really enjoyed my career thus far, we'll see. It's still relatively early. There's still time to screw it up. Hopefully, I don't screw it up for, for Wander. <laughs> I would say there's really three components to what makes me tick. And so the first piece I would say is creativity. And creativity is one of those words that gets thrown around so much that it almost has lost its meaning. But I mean, very literally at the core, I'm a creative person in the sense that I find deep meaning and value in creating things, especially creating things out of nothing. So I think that's part of why startups have resonated with me for almost 15 years is that building companies, this sounds weird to say, but it almost feels like a form of modern art. To me, there's nothing more magical than being involved in these zero to one moments, either yourself, like starting something from scratch or being there very, very early to help a founder from the marketing side or investing in these zero to one moments. It's just one of the most exciting things in life for me. And so that's probably the first component. I think the second component, I'd struggle to know what to call it, but maybe you could bucket a number of different things together into what I would maybe consider belief. 
And so this would encompass everything from faith. As you heard from my uh, biblical reading of the story of David, I'm a Christian. And that's a whole, we could talk about that and me walking away from faith and coming back to it much later as, as an adult. But that, and then my philosophy about the world, and we kind of start to get into politics and worldview and all that stuff. What's good? What's evil? What's good policy? What's bad policy? What's good for society? What's not good for society? I'm just someone that's always thought very, very long and hard about those things. Even being a kid, it was probably a really weird thing. There's actually a really funny picture somewhere of me sitting there reading the Wall Street Journal at the table at like seven or eight years old. I have pretty strongly held beliefs, but I've also learned to be a little more humble with that because I've changed my mind about so many things over time. And so I try not to hold on to those beliefs too strongly. And then the third component I would say is family and, and family really being everything for me. And I know you can relate to this as someone who really has a strong family. But at this point, having a daughter, having a wife, and given the fact that I know life is short, spending time with my siblings, my parents, my extended family, my in-laws is the number one most important thing to me. And so it goes back to kind of a little bit of what we're talking about with Wander is I'm at my happiest when we're all together, wherever that is, it doesn't matter. That's when I'm in my happy place. And so those are probably the things that make me tick if I had to really break it down to the, the core pieces. Yeah. It's creation, belief, and people, essentially. Yeah. I think that's it. It's amazing. So for this last part of the podcast, I'm going to ask you some questions that I ask every single guest. You can take them in any direction that you want. And the first question is, what's something you believe that most people don't? I firmly believe that there's nothing in this world that you can't change. I think that the the world is incredibly malleable. And I think that anything that you aren't happy with through some set of actions, you have you have the ability to to shift and to change. And I, I think that's something that most people understand and agree with, but I, I don't think that people believe it because otherwise you wouldn't be able to explain the amount of problems that we have in our country and as a society. It's one of those things where it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you don't believe that you have efficacy or that your lot in life is determined by factors completely outside of your control, then that's sort of just what's going to happen. And obviously there's things that happen to us all the time that we can't control, but we can control, obviously, as you mentioned before, how we respond to them and also what we do about them. What's a problem you're concerned about that most people aren't? Or to say it another way, what's a problem people don't pay enough attention to? I, I think that the risk of the majority of jobs being removed essentially due to artificial intelligence and other automations is extremely high. And I do not think the way that governments and the economy is, is set up is, is ready for it. I think that even white collar jobs, software engineers and otherwise, I, I don't think that they're safe from that future. And I think that what's going to end up happening is, is that the country that understands that and is moving towards building a, a government and an economy and, and regulations and safeguards with that future in mind is going to become the leader. I, I think you look at China and the US and how China has essentially said that they want to be the leaders in AI, but whatever it is, 2025 or 2030 kind of shows that they understand that. And so if, if I was in any position of power inside of the US government, my primary objective would be 
to get the smartest, most talented people all across the globe to call the U.S. their residents as quickly as possible and to ensure that the country maintain that leadership. Yeah, I mean, I fully agree that one of the biggest mistakes we're making, and it's a very bipartisan mistake, is not using immigration as a way to recruit the best and the brightest folks. And it's not just purely about someone's ability to come here and start a business or contribute you know, financially or economically to society, I fundamentally believe actually that one of the only ways to save the United States is through immigration. Because yeah. I remember like back when we used to commute into work, I remember I would often be in an Uber in the city in San Francisco. And I would talk to you know, immigrants from like Kenya and the Middle East and Eastern Europe and talking to these folks about why they came here and what they escaped from just reminded me what we have here and why it's worth protecting. And so, yes, we want to recruit the best and the brightest, of course, and we want them to contribute to making our country an amazing place. Well, I, but- I think yeah, yeah, what I was going to say is if you think about the fact that, you know, if you look at any of these, you know, US-based companies, right? Like we we employ a huge chunk of of our workforce overseas now. Right? These are software engineers, designers, researchers, scientists who are all across the globe, you know, extremely talented, brilliant individuals who are being paid by a U.S. company and then paying taxes in their home country. And, and some portion of those people want to come to the United States. They want to work here. They want to pay U.S. taxes. And the, the idea to me that you could basically create a path for those people to come to the United States to pay those taxes here to work and to be able to move from company to company, et cetera, and have a country that had the most talented people in the world and, and continue to attract it. And so, yeah, I agree with you. I think that the the solution to many of the problems the U.S. faces is through immigration. Yeah. And neither party really seems particularly concerned about it. Last question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? I would say one thing my pop always told me and my sister growing up was sort of the the family motto was to never give up and never give in. And so not necessarily advice, but... I think it's advice. It's certainly a North Star and a family mantra to, to lean on when things are, are not so great. I think that a lot of parents understand that one day they're not going to be there. And so I I think that instilling those lessons is super critical. It's almost like ensuring that your voice is there even when you're not. Yeah, fully agree. Well, John Andrew, this has been an awesome conversation. If folks, maybe folks that want to invest in Wander, maybe folks that want to work at Wander, maybe they want to book a Wander, want to get connected with you, what's the best way for them to do that? They can go to wander.com, throw in their phone number, and, and they'll get a link to download the app. They'll be asked if they want to become a founding member. And if they do, they'll skip the wait list and receive a whole host of other perks and benefits. But as we sort of covered earlier in this podcast, we've all watched a lot of really amazing companies change the world from the sidelines. I'm a big believer that if people believe in Wander and what we're doing and that it can change the world, that I want to give them the opportunity to have real ownership. So we'll be doing our best to give founding members the opportunity to invest in our next financing. Obviously, it's complicated investing in private companies and, and otherwise, but it's something I, I firmly believe in. And so we're going to try and make it happen. 
Awesome. Well, yeah, I'm super excited about it. Normally at the end of the podcast, I'll, you know, <laughs> it's saying goodbye for a while, but obviously we're going to hop on Slack and start working. So this has been a fun <laughs> hour long break in our normal workday. And I'm sure folks will be excited to hear your story and hear about what we're building at Wander and to reach out. So Amazing. Uh, I'll talk to you on Slack in a little bit. <laughs> All right. All right. Later. Thank you. Bye. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you got this far into the conversation, first off, really appreciate you taking the time to listen. And I want to reiterate a couple of things we're doing at Wander to give early believers a chance to have real ownership in the company. So for a short period of time, you can become a Wander founding member for $100. I think the most exciting benefit is you have a potential opportunity to invest in the company in the next round of funding. You also get that $100 credited toward your first stay with us, limited edition founding member hoodie, early access to homes before everyone else, friends and family with you get to skip the wait list. And we're also doing a free trip giveaway for you and up to three friends for three nights. As I mentioned, all you have to do is go to wander.com slash Kyle, download the app, create an account by November 15th. You'll be entered to win for free and we'll announce the winner in a couple weeks. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself. Thank you.